Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. Welcome to another episode of the Only Three Lads podcast, where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. Each week, we take a topic and we give you our top five. I'm Uncle Greg. We have the PhD of music, Brett Vargo, and of course, Ambassador Breno. Oh, y'all. How are you guys? guys? Really good, man. I can't believe we are on episode 21. 21. This is 21. 21. So in the podcast game of Blackjack, yep. we have 21 episodes and three Jokers. Yep. Wow, three Jokers a, and all Blackjacks. That's a good hand, I see. <laughs> yes, it is. Yep. And of course, this week we are taking a look at our top five albums of 1995, a great year for alternative music. Mm-hmm. It was really hard this week for me. I was taking a look at a lot of albums. I have a lot of connections to the albums that I picked this week. Was it hard for you guys? For sure. Actually, not really. This was kind of a softball for me because like 1995, it was a weird year for me. And I've kind of mentioned this on past episodes. So I was 20 turning 21 and I foolishly that year entered into my first short lived failed marriage. I was working full time and I was going to school at night and I was pretty miserable. So music was really my only salvation. <laughs> and, you know, looking back on that year. Exciting and exactly. Exciting and I'm terrible. Bored. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were young, you know, but you see, if you get married before 25, then that's a mulligan. You can't yeah. really hold it against the person. I now, agree. You're over Hope 25. My wife agrees with that. <laughs> well, I would think but so. All, all I really remember with fondness is the music. Everything else has kind of faded into the sunset. So that's why probably this week, I think three of my five choices are by artists that i've picked in the past so i think it's like uh brett weird's evil twin brett predictable this okay week. oh no brett predictable yeah. weird oh no look out brett predictably weird well <laughs> let's get it started brett you know what you're kicking off this week's list let's hear your top five your very first one number five okay well way back in the post-punk episode i talked about an album that carried me through some of those tough times that i mentioned And that album was Television Personalities and Don't the Kids Just Love It from 1981, one of my all-time favorite records. My number five album is TV Personalities' 1995 album, I Was a Mod Before You Was a Mod. Great title. And that album had a similar effect on me during 95. It was the first new TVP's album that I bought after becoming a fan earlier that year. And it was the album that probably spoke most directly to my mindset at the time. It's not exactly an uplifting album. Aside from the weird Who-esque pop art songs like the title track, Little Woody Allen, and Things Have Changed Since I Was a Girl, it's largely filled with sad, tragic ruminations of loneliness, despair, and descending into madness. It's thoughtful and heart-wrenching, harrowing, and haunting. 
It hits you right out of the gate with the song, as John Belushi said. And just in case you were wondering what John Belushi said, he said, I know I'll get all the sleep I need when I am dead. Once upon a time, I was manically impressed. I spent my days in bed, medication always fed my head. As John Belushi said. Essentially a Dan Tracy solo record, which is okay since he was the only stable member of the band over 30 plus years, it contains some of his bleakest and most direct songs, as you may be able to guess in song titles like A Stranger to Myself, Evan Doesn't Ring Me Anymore, and I Can See My Whole World Crashing Down. Well, that's optimistic. Compared to the album that came before it, 1992's major label Closer to God, which was about as produced as the TVPs ever got after landing an opening spot for Nirvana, I Was a Mod Before You Was a Mod is stripped down, spare, and very analog sounding. Both musically and vocally, Dan Tracy sounds more fragile, delicate, and on the verge of collapse than ever, which is really saying something. But within that despair and self-loathing is solace, and that's why the album spoke so loudly and continues to speak to me today. That's my number five album in 1995, Television Personalities. I was a mod before you was a mod. You a mod. I'm a mod. I will have to look that one up. It's not easy to find nowadays. That's a tough one to find. Yes. But if you find it, grab it, according to you. Yes. All right. All right. Well, number five on my list this week, of course, before there was new metal like Linkin Park and Limp Bizkit, there was 311. They were mashing that rock and reggae and rap all together. I discovered 311 when I was with The Edge. We were doing a series of pool parties at apartment complexes to promote them before Arizona State University's fall semester in 1993. So I'm at the pool, get this, I'm with the Cranberries, Hmm. who were just releasing their debut album. Uh, Everybody else is doing it, why can't we? And Dolores was in the pool playing with kids and those poor pasty white Irish people getting baked in the Arizona hot summer sun. Now a year later, they would Dolores wouldn't call us on the telephone, but it was brand, she, the band was brand new, first time to Arizona, and they're hanging out at a pool. But I'm at that pool and someone's jamming 311. I said, who is this? I really liked it. So when their 1995 self-titled Triple Platinum album was released, I was ready. Of course, the song Down was a staple of alternative radio. And then the song All Mixed Up really carried the band's success into 1996. And I remember at this time, 311, they took a lot of heat because they were getting accused of racism because 311. Oh, did somebody get shot? No. no. Okay. Just making sure. He dropped his nerd <laughs> rope. <laughs> it was candy, man. I got totally dull. You all right there? Oh, you're good? Yeah. So anyways, 311, they were being accused of racism because the 11th letter in the alphabet, K, so three KKK. Of course, it was all BS because Mm. S.A. Martinez is in the band and the name comes from the Omaha Police Department's code for indecent exposure because an earlier band member got arrested for streaking. But 
But if you get a chance, listen to this album again, 311. It's number five this week for me of the top albums of 1995. Great album. Or listen to it for the first time. What? Yeah, for what, sure. Well, grassroots. When we get to the mid '90s, I you guys know that there's uh, somewhat of a divide between what we were listening to. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Oh, totally. But but that's great. It was all great music. Yeah. And like we always say, Brett, uh, I like learn things and hear new things from you that I missed at that time. So perfect. Then I don't have any problem with us being on our own little island of misfit toys. Yeah, you're talking about across the Atlantic then, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, 1995, uh, you know, for for Brett, by the way, just real quick, I know that that's when the Britpop movement really was at its peak. And since you are very into that, that's why you were somewhere else. Bueno. Bueno. Yeah. Bueno. Bueno. Number five five, uh, is an album by a British new wave group called Squeeze. Ridiculous. Hmm. Released November 13th, 1995. This is the band's 11th studio album, and it introduced their latest drummer, Kevin Wilkerson. No relation to the bassist, Keith Wilkerson. And on the previous album, Some Fantastic Place, the band recorded one song penned for Keith Wilkerson at this time. However, Wilkerson did not perform any lead vocals. And that song, Got To Be, is the last Wilkerson would write with Squeeze and Chris Dilfert sang lead on two songs, Long Face and Fingertips, and had not performed lead on an album cut since Slaughter, Gutted, and Heartbroken, and Love Circles on the 1989 album Frank. And this record was produced by Glenn Tilbrook and Peter Smith. Three singles came off that, plus one remix, uh, This Summer, great song. This summer the Electric trains. From Julie Andrews to Jerry Garcia. Life was all fun and games. Heaven knows. I don't care what the world has to say. And the remix was this summer, and my favorite on the album was Grouch of the Day. And that is my number five for the top five albums from 1995, Squeeze Ridiculous. I was wondering when you were going to get squeezed, squeezed in. No pun intended. Right now. I think that's the one Squeeze album I don't have. Really? <laughs> okay. It's great I'm one. always down for some Squeeze. Oh, you'll love Electric Trains and, and This Summer. Did I tell you about that one time I was hanging out at a pool party with Squeeze? <laughs> no. No, it didn't exist, but... Okay. Okay. Well, it might one day. You never know. That was a dig on me. I have more stories for this episode. No, that's that's a phenomenal line. I was hanging out at a pool party with the cranberries. That's got to be like the lead in for every joke. Mm-hmm. Well, it was true. All Brett, right. what's your number four? This <laughs> week? My number four. Yeah, that's right. As somewhat of a spoiler alert for what I did not pick this episode, I scratched off my first two contenders for number four, which were Oasis's What's the Story, Morning Glory, and Radiohead's The Bends, as I figured they were probably the most likely to be represented by either Uncle Greg or Bueno. Nope. Well, darn it. Nope, neither. Well, then I'll consider those honorable mentions. (laughs) It shocked even me to cast those two albums aside because along with the albums that occupy my top three this week, those were the two most important records to my 1995 self. Instead, though, I wanted to shine the spotlight on an album that I received for Christmas 1995, but my appreciation for this Americana album really started to grow exponentially a few years later as I awoke from my Britpop-induced coma. That album is 
Wrecking Ball by Emmy Lou Harris. I love Emmy Lou. Her voice just melts my heart and soul. Hearing her harmonize with Graham Parsons on his early 70s records is one of the most sublime treats for the human ear, and her spectacular solo albums from 1975 to 1980 are truly a marvel, certainly one of the best runs in the world of country music. The 80s, however, were less kind to Emmy Lou. She continued to churn out material with diminishing returns, always enjoyable, but not of the same caliber as her earlier LPs. By the early 90s, the new crop of largely bland and, in my opinion, utterly despicable Nashville radio stars were starting to push Harris into honky-tonk irrelevance. So instead of continuing to repeat more of the same, Harris takes an Emmy Lou weird, not Brett weird, but Emmy Lou weird, left turn, in steps producer Daniel Lanois of Bob Dylan U2 and Peter Gabriel fame, and we are left with an album that revitalized and refined Emmy Lou's artistry. It introduced the country legend to a new audience of, surprisingly, alternative rock fans. Lanois' production is typically gorgeous and atmospheric, adding an ethereal sonic gauze on top of some of Emmy Lou's most beautiful vocals. Nearly 30 years into her career, this was Harris's most cohesive and fully realized work. Hold on to your aching heart. Like most of her albums, it's essentially an album of interpretations. Harris only receives a co-writing credit on one track. The rest of the songwriting duties belong to the likes of Neil Young, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Lucinda Williams, and Steve Earle. But what this was is it was an important album for reinvigorating Emmy Lou and giving her more confidence as a songwriter. In fact, her output since has been absolutely stunning and actually contains many original compositions. So sorry, Oasis and Radiohead, I give you both the big wrecking ball this week. That is Wrecking Ball by Emmy Lou Harris. Wow. wow. Very alternative. Just yes. threw them out, huh? I hated to do it. Yeah, well, sometimes, even though maybe the critics, they really love the albums, and whenever you see the best albums of 95, some list, you know, of course, Radiohead, they're the first ones on there. But maybe you just didn't connect with it at the time because you weren't there. Now you go back and listen to it and go, oh, God, it's awesome. Look what I missed. But that's the same way with me. I did not pick the Benz. But oh. I definitely loved Pablo Honey, the first one from Radiohead, which came out, I think, was in 93. 93. Yeah, and that was a great album. Bands was a little bit, I wanted something more like Pablo Honey, so I kind of just put my attention on other things. I'm the opposite. I find the, the Benz to be an immense step up from Pablo Honey. Oh, yeah, yeah. But see, I yeah. wasn't an immense step up. I was still in my 20s going, beer, women, woo! And then, you know, you have something <laughs> intelligent come out. Yeah, I'm weird. Um, <laughs> I'm not right. And, but you know, I was in party mode, so I wanted a party mm -hmm. album, and they put out something that was intelligent, and I just wasn't there yet. All, All right. right. Uncle Greg. Well, we're at my number four of the top five albums of 1999. God. I oh, what year was that again? It's a top five album of 1995. No, they don't. That's the problem, because my brain, sometimes it does uh, bounces all around like a ball in a concrete box is what happens here. 
All right, so my number four, though. I have been a huge fan of the Goo Goo Dolls ever since their 1993 album, Superstar Car Wash. The song Fallen Down is when I first took notice of the band. And then, of course, the song We Are the Normal cemented me, and that's because my mother died of cancer early 1993, and I found a connection with that song, We Are the Normal. It's a song Johnny Resnick wrote about his mother's death. Of course, he wrote that song with Paul Westerberg. So in 1995, when a boy named Goo comes out, it's not as punk. College radio was like, what happened? And of course, it's called Evolution. The band, they were all about to turn 30. They weren't in their 20s anymore. And so really the album came out, I want to say early 95. And throughout the rest of the winter, throughout the fall crickets, Summer came, it looked like this album was gonna do nothing. And then all of a sudden, I mean, it really alienated a lot of the core fans from the punk time. In that summer of 95, Kevin Weatherly, the iconic radio programmer from K-Rock, started to play the song Name, which then every other alternative radio station across the country started playing that song. And really, that song made this album one of the most successful alternative albums of the mid-90s. only one naked long way down the other singles off this album it sent the goo goo dolls into the mainstream they'd be out touring this summer i saw them a few summers ago all by myself what a great show it's just awesome but of course that damn covid so they're going to be out next summer but if you ever get the chance go and see the goo goo dolls it's a great band a boy named goo a great album and my number four this week that's a great album if it weren't for you meddling covid hey you guys remember when the yellow submarine when we were watching that like a couple weeks ago when the, they had the listening party yep. and stuff that one part of the movie there was a covid 19 hint in there was People it need, yeah the illuminati make i dare play. anybody to find it and post it on our our facebook page so hmm. let's see if somebody can find it so, hmm. all right, Bueno. My number four was released on August 15th, of 1995 by Alamo Sounds. It's their first album by Garbage. I'm only happy when it rains. This album was met with critical acclaim upon its release, being viewed by some as an innovative recording for its time. It reached number 20 on the U.S. Billboard 200 and number 6 on the U.K. album chart, while charting inside the top 20 and receiving multiple platinum certifications in several territories. This album's success helped the band's promoting on its year-long tour, including playing the European festival circuit and supporting Smashing Pumpkins through 1996, as well as by running an increasingly successful singles accumulating with Stupid Girl, which received a Grammy Award nomination for the Best Rock Song and Best Rock Performance. Five singles came off of that record, Val, Only Happy When It Rains, Queer, Stupid Girl, and Milk. And this record has sold over 4 million units worldwide. My favorite from that record is Super Vixen, and that is my number four for the top five albums from 1995. 
garbage band. What a record. Great yeah. record. Man, I fell off my chair when I first heard that thing. Yeah. That was I remember amazing. we played it like crazy on the radio station, of course. Butch Big. Shirley Manson. Shirley Manson, oh. beautiful. She was, was the Angel oh, Fish was her first band? Uh-huh. No, Goodbye Mr. McKenzie. Goodbye Mr. McKenzie. But Angel Fish was, she was in right before Garbage, Yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And then I remember because when she came out, because I, I, I had seen her or heard of her from Angel Fish. And of course, Butch Fig, he was in this band. He's the producer of Nirvana's Nevermind. So it was really huge news when this band came out. Then when they hit the ground running with all those singles and all those hits. I was mildly obsessed with Queer when it came out, and I always linked it in my mind. Do you guys remember a song from 1994 by the group Whale, Hobo Humpin' Slobo Babe? Yes. I remember that. I heard, right. it, I heard it a couple times, maybe. But I yeah. still have that CD single, and I always link those two songs for some <laughs> reason in my mind. Queer and so that. So there huh? you go. Homo Humpin' Babe. All right. <laughs> We're almost there. We're now past our, uh, I guess we're what, number five and number four on our list of top five albums of 1995 here on the Only Three Lads podcast. Make sure and get to our Facebook page, like us, hit notifications. Our episodes come out every Tuesday morning. Brett, he works hard. He makes sure and gets them pumped out. So he works hard incredible. for no money. <laughs> we do it for the love here and we yes, enjoy we that do. and appreciate that you're joining us every week and you're teaching us things and i believe that we're teaching you things so it's a big love fest yeah here. it's a win-win so stick around our top five albums of 1995 continues after this only three lads uncle greg like a child he's an adhd mess you know he's a window licker right Ooh. Something sparkly. Only three lads. Take part in the O3L mixtape experience. Head over to our Facebook page and leave us your favorite alternative summer songs for our summer playlist. Dr. Don gave us his amazing list. Number five, The Cramps, Bikini Girls with Machine Guns. Number four, The Knack, My Sharona. Number three, Bananarama, Cruel Summer. Number two, The Cars, Bye Bye Love. And number one, The Kings, This Beat Goes On and Switch into Glide. Nice one. He even gave my son Julian's song Summer's Coming an honorable mention. I knew I liked you, Doc. Now back to the show. I've decided I'm going to start a band. First thing you need is a name. Then you'll know what kind of band you've got. I was kind of thinking about, um, Mark. What do you think of that? Is that with a C or with a K? Well, um, my name is with K. <laughs> so I was thinking maybe my band could be with the C. So that way it's kind of like that psychedelic, you know, trip thing. <laughs> always play with their minds we are back here on the only three lads podcast where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music don't forget you can find us anywhere on a lot of platforms where you get your podcast i'm uncle greg we have brett vargo and we have bueno 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 hey we're cutting bueno out right now oh no here's the gorilla (laughs) oh we missed the gorilla for just a few days he's back right on maybe he'll tell us Bueno's number three. But right now, Brett, what is your number three this week? I will have no jungle animals reading for me today. My number three is by a band who has come dangerously close to making my list in the past. But this is an O3L debut, friends. And it is the eponymous first album by Elastica, released in March 1995. Great album. Great band. Wow. Loud scream. You getting tortured over there?
All right, so Elastica took some flack because their self-titled album is not really all that original. It echoes the jerky, angular punk rock of groups like Wire and The Stranglers, both of whom sued the band for plagiarism. But all these years later, Elastica holds up as a timeless tour de force, one of the best and most consistent artifacts of the Britpop era. Every track shapes his borrowed influences into a smashing success, and collectively it all comes together as a cohesive whole. One of the great things about Elastica was that they broke through the lads club of Britpop and gave them a serious run for their money. Sexy, sassy, empowering, brash, and a heck of a 40-minute thrill ride. The list of classics on this album is impressive. Stutter, lineup, connection, waking up, car song. It wasn't meant to be for the band, though. After this one blast of brilliance, they released an EP in 1999 and a long-delayed follow-up, The Menace, in 2001. And that was it. Even though I feel that this album gets overlooked nowadays, it did have its share of accolades and success. The album instantly soared to number one in the UK and actually had some success on this side of the pond as well. It ranked top five on the year-end best of list for many publications. And in 2013, NME named it as the 191st greatest album of all time. I would love to be in the top million albums of all time. And in 2017, Pitchfork called it the sixth best Britpop album. So for an album that still hits in all the right places, check out my number three, Elastica by Elastica. Yeah, but let me ask you this, Brad, okay? Real fast. Ask me. Okay, so that hit number six. What was the top five spots? All Blur? I can't remember what they were, I'm sure. Oasis, Blur. Yeah, Oasis, Blur, Pulp. Yeah, Pulp, definitely. Supergrass, Suede. I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Okay, cool. I'll get back to you. All right, let me know. All right, well, my number three this week of the top five albums of 1995. Let's go back to that year, of course. The internet was at its genesis. So we really didn't know that this pop artist had a pop dance albums in Canada. She was also on You Can't Do That on Television. Of course, my number three this week, Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. Now, she moved to L.A. to write with Lynn Ballard, who co-wrote Jagged Little Pill with her. It's one of the best-selling albums of all time, winning five Grammy Awards. And my first connection with Miss Morissette was the summer of 95, weeks before the album was released. My radio station, The Edge, was spinning. You Ought to Know, which was quickly becoming a hit. We booked her into a club on Mill Avenue, right near Arizona State University, and tickets sold out like within minutes. So of course the promoter asked her, hey, let's do this in a bigger venue, but her management played it off like she's never played in front of a large crowd. We don't want to freak her out. We want to have her crawl before she has to walk and run. But of course, you find out then, again, the internet wasn't big at the time. We couldn't Google her and find out that she was playing stadiums in Canada. And then a few months later, in early 96, uh, she played Mesa Amphitheater, where I got to interview her backstage. It was just her and I in a back room, and I have no idea who authorized that. Even at the time, I was thinking, why isn't security in her, you know, in here with her? And I remember trying to press her to try and tell me who the song You Oughta Know is about, which she still has never said. Everybody says it's about Dave Coulier, the guy from... It's about me. It's about you. She was really sweet and really nice. Um, And I'll tell you another thing I remember from that interview was Pearl Jam played the same venue just days before. 
and their set list was written on a yellow trash can, and Alanis Morissette and I, we discussed who would get to steal that trash can. I never did. I don't know if she did, but I do know that Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill, just huge album that year. definitely made waves and I think that uh, a 25 year anniversary Jagged Little Pill album is being released if it's not already released in the next few weeks so you might want to get out there and get that it's all the songs in acoustic it's like That's my number three this week. Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill of the top five albums of 1995. I didn't realize she did anything after you can't do that on television. Well, she was on Maverick Records, which was Madonna's label at the time. And I guess everyone passed on her. And then, of course, she had the biggest album. Of course, Taylor Hawkins was in her band. Then he went to the Foo Fighters a few years later. But that was a huge thing back then. I can't tell you how big Alanis was in the mid-90s. That was one of the like 10 CDs that my ex-wife had. She got it in the divorce. Mm, Gladly. Anything that was hers, she could have had. That and Joan Osborne. Take it, please. Well, Joan Osborne was a backup singer for some band here in the Phoenix area. And then, yeah, and then they just kind of, you know, what if God was one of us? And then, of course, they put the, you know, what was so shocking and so different. Again, Image sold her more than her song and more than her singing because they put that nose ring, which wasn't even an actual pierced nose ring, on her nose, and they made that video, and she became fraud. No, it's just, for me, it's negative association. It's nothing against either Joan Osborne. I'm sure you're very lovely, Joan. Or Alanis, I'm sure you're very Canadian. She is very lovely. Alanis Morissette, I remember she was very soft-spoken. Everyone talked about her character. She was 21 at the time in 95, so right around your age, Brett. And she was really... A lot of people, even Glenn Ballard talked about, she was years ahead in maturity than 21. And that's how all those great songs came out. Cause I think she was burnt out on that pop dance stuff. So she wanted to do something that was from the heart and honest. And she did exactly that with Jagged Little Pill. Bueno. All right. Yeah, that was a great, great record there. My number three, how can I say this? Brett? Yes. Elastica. Really? So that's why you sounded like uh, you were being held down and yeah, waterboarded. The, the gorilla body slammed me at that point because he heard you say Elastica and he looked at me and he picked me up and he threw me down. And that's what you heard. So, yeah. So one of the best uh, Britpop bands, uh, despite a style built on a hook heavy new wave and a cool sexuality of Justine Frischman. This band was influenced by punk rock, post-punk, new wave music. Incredible. I mean, everybody loved this record. I mean, 16 songs speed by in 40 minutes, and they're all classics. And uh, Brett said it all already. I mean, as this album definitely ranks high, calling it a neglected gem and a blueprint for what Britpop should sound like. So uh, number one on the UK album chart, becoming at the time the fastest selling record since uh, the first album of uh, Oasis, but definitely maybe. And uh, the record did well in the US, climbing to number 66 on the Billboard 200 list. That's a joke got somewhere in the top 10 and then sold like 59,000 units uh, by the end of 95 sold over a million copies uh, and then 
think Brett mentioned uh, Pitchfork listed the album at number six. That is my number three for the top five albums from 1995, Elastica's first uh, crossover with uh, PhD, Master Brett. As Greg would say, that was a very intelligent choice. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. I still listen to the singles off that album. Like sometimes I I'm sitting around album. and I go on yeah. YouTube and I get in my Britpop mode. I'm listening to Blur. Always Elastica Connection comes up and I just love that song. Still do. It's got everything that I like. Oh yeah, mm. heavy bass and everything, and heavy bass and the you know the guitar riff done, done, done. Oh, what you couldn't ask for more. It sounds so timeless too. That's the thing. It's 25 years old, and it sounds like it just came out yesterday. That's what's so scary. There is something to be said for the old saying: "Genius steals." Mm-hmm. It is abundantly genius in that case. <laughs> Very Brett's much got so. a problem with it, but he likes it. Okay. <laughs> What's your number two? We're staying in the British Isles here. My number two album is Pulp's Different Class, released in October 1995. Wow. Finally, 12 years after their debut album and 16 years into their existence, Jarvis Cocker's band broke through in a huge way with their fifth studio record. Building upon the critical and commercial success of its wonderful predecessor, His and Hers, the album entered the UK charts straight with a bullet at number one, won the prestigious Mercury Music Prize in 1996, and has sold well over a million copies in Great Britain alone. is called Different Class, and it is indeed in a different class. And the characters of whom Cocker so astutely chronicles on this album are also of a different class. All sorts of different classes, in fact. It is an album that champions the underdogs, the weirdos, the misshapes, mistakes, misfits, the common people, all as told from the perspective of Jarvis and his keen eye and sharp wit. Firmly established Cocker in the pantheon of great British songwriters, but whereas writers like Ray Davis or Damon Albarn takes a more empathetic view of their song subjects, there's always something a little mysterious, voyeuristic, and slightly perverted about Cocker's approach. He's not the guy sitting on the park bench watching the world go by, he's the guy in the bushes wearing a trench coat obsessively plotting his revenge. Different Class is Pulp's bold, grandiose, widescreen, big artistic statement. And it succeeds at every level. A masterpiece, an album chock full of classics anchored by some of the best-loved singles in the pulp repertoire. Sorted for Ease and Whiz, Disco 2000, Miss Shapes, and of course, arguably the single defining song of the Britpop era and one of the greatest pop records of the 90s, or any era for that matter, Common People. I wanna do whatever common people do. Wanna sleep with common people. I wanna sleep with common people like you. What else could I do? An incredibly smart and impeccably crafted pop single, Common People stalled at number two, held off by the wretched Robson and Jerome cover of Unchained Melody in the UK. Blech. 
Smith. Absolutely criminal. As criminal, I suppose, as different class stalling at number two this week on my top five albums of 1995. Awesome record. Every last Every song. Yep. That's what I'm going to have to also check out. Oh, yeah. And great mm-hmm. B-sides, too. Cool. Well, Brett, as you were in over in the UK, I am my number two of the top five albums of 1995 takes us to Southern California. Of course, my number two from the little ska band that could that kicked off the ska revival of the 90s. It is oh, no, no doubt's tragic kingdom. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, here we go. There we go. Over. I feel it. I feel it. Now, of course, <laughs> this album proves that breakups leads to great art. Tony Cadnall and Gwen Stefani, they were an item for seven years breaking up in 1994. <laughs> Also that year, Gwen's brother, Eric Stefani, left Tragic Kingdom. He went to go work on The Simpsons as an illustrator. So if you have the album Tragic Kingdom or you go to the record store, flip it over, look in the back, look way, way back there, you'll see Eric. And I don't know if that guy went into a deep depression because he left before the band hit. And a lot of people think, oh, no doubt they got lucky. No, they were a hardworking band because I met No Doubt before they broke. And what happened was they drove all the way from Anaheim, California to Phoenix to be on a Sunday show called The Noisy Donut Shop with Christopher the Minister. And I remember because I did the local show after his show. And I walk into the room and Christopher the Minister says, Greg, this is no doubt they're out of Anaheim. They got a new album coming out. And I remember meeting Gwen and all the guys. And Gwen had, she was like a little grunge girl. She wasn't the glam girl yet that she became when we saw I'm Just a Girl video on MTV, which of course sent the band into the stratosphere but tragic kingdom it is a novella where the girl saves the boys that first single just a girl is gwen blasting stereotypes then that mtv video spider webs about getting phone calls from a dude she doesn't want to get a phone call from and then don't speak the ballad about her and tony's breakup spent 16 weeks at number one on the charts singles off that album excuse me mr and sunday mornings so this album's really opened the doors for the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Say Ferris, and all those ska bands. And this week, no doubt, Tragic Kingdom, number two of my top five albums of 1995. Well, 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 well. Hmm. Was there a swimming pool involved, though? No. Well, let okay. me think. Be- well, kind of, because I met her <laughs> the first time with Christopher the Minister, what I just talked about. Then another time, I'm at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, and I see her just standing there. So I walk up to her. I'm starting to talk to her, and you know, she's like rolling her eyes like, oh, my God. And then I said, Christopher the Minister. Then she was like, oh. And so she started talking to me. And then you could tell some like roadie or some band manager picked her up and walked off with her. I was like, I tackled you. No, it didn't tackle me. Grabbed her and walked her away. But that was, but she, she wasn't even famous really. She, she, there were sprinkles of fame. She was just starting to bubble on MTV because she was standing in the middle of the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino just by herself. You know, she was waiting for someone, probably they were checking in, whatever they were doing. And then we did a big show with them. It was Super Bowl 30 at, in Tempe, where it used to be Club Rio. And they were the headliners. And of course we hung out with the whole band back there. So that was in 96, early 96. So 
Um, those are my times that I got to hang out with Gwen. But Tragic Kingdom was just so huge. And it, I mean, and then they had the other albums come out. And of course, Gwen just, I think she just finished her residency in Vegas. I don't know if they're going to extend it, but I definitely would love to go see her again. But I saw the band a couple times. Well, now. you should very shortly be expecting a call from Blake Shelton's people just to check up on you and make sure you're not a threat. <laughs> Um, you know, I was a little bit creepy because I used to remember those T-shirts, Mr. Stefani. Yeah. I sported one of those. No. <laughs> Brett, and I don't know where you were in 95, but those shirts were very popular. It's amazing. You would have thought that I was not in Southern California in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Say Ferris was another great band that came out of there. They were all kind of like buddies, but remember them, Say Ferris? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, they were out of that SoCal. Uh, they were out of Garden Grove, which is right over there by Anaheim. So right they were all kind there. of hanging right out. to Disneyland. Yep, right down the street. Catella yep. in Euclid. Or yep. it's Catella, and then I think that Gwen Stefani's, I want to say that her high school and her brother's was, this is how weird I was, Catella and Ball, which if you're yep. getting off the 55 to go to Disneyland, you get off that Ball to get into the parking lot. Mm -hmm. at, yes, sir. Disneyland. I've been, been there that about area. 500 times in my life. <laughs> Me too. All right, Bueno, you're number two. My number two, it's probably not going to be a crossover, I'm pretty sure, but we'll see, um, is by a, a gentleman we both all love. Uh, it's called Wonderful Adam Ant. It's oh, his yeah. fifth solo studio album, his eighth LP overall in his career. And this peaked at 143 on the Billboard 200 chart. Another ripoff. Uh, this band included Ant's longtime uh, collaborator, you know, Marco, along with uh, Dave Ruffy and Morrissey's guitarist. Was it Boz Booler? Did I say Boz, that right? Yeah. Uh, this album includes uh, more acoustic songs than uh, Ant's previous albums. This album, a reposition, Adam is the more mature pop rocker with crafted songs that featured acoustic guitars. This album was a moderate hit in the United States and UK, and the single Wonderful, which became Ant's third U.S. top hit, it's an incredible song, and uh, was the first uh, Adam Ant album to be released in the U.S. before the U.K., so uh, that's kind of weird, but uh, this thing is incredible. This record is just wonderful. From I mean, literally, wonderful, the first uh, song all the uh, way down. I know what huh. she did there. Uh-huh. Yes, I do. Did I tell you that I was wrong? And, you know, there's 11 songs, and uh, I adore all 11 songs, but my favorite actually has got to be a sin. You know, please give Adam Ant's wonderful record a wonderful listen as my number two for the top five albums from 1995, Adam Ant's wonderful bueno i second that emotion because i remember when, when that came out i was so thrilled to play it what a great song wonderful mm -hmm. is it just was amazing it's, when that came a out nice song. very nice album we are up to our number ones here on the only three lads podcast please get to facebook make sure and like us hit notifications and give us your top five albums of 1995 and next week we may read your list here on the podcast stick around we'll be back in two and two with our number ones or we might read the gorillas list <laughs>
life is random sometimes, and so is the way we pick our show topics. We've got oodles of topics, oodles I say, in a database and then let the computer do the work for us. But did you know that you can take part in that? If we land on a listener's choice and pick your suggestion, you'll not only be the envy of your friends, but you'll also get a cool O3L t-shirt. Go to facebook.com slash only3lads, join the community, and give us your thoughts. Now back to the only show. Only three lads. Brett Vargo, Brit Popmaster, and the Chicks Diggum. What? That's not him? <clears throat> Brett Vargo, Brit Popmaster, and his wife says, ugh, he's okay. Thank you for sticking with us here on the Only Three Lads podcast, where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music. I'm Uncle Greg. We have the PhD of music, Brett Vargo, and we have Ambassador Bueno. This week, we're taking a look at our top five albums of 1995, and we are at our number ones so far. Our list, guys, love them. Yeah. Pretty good stuff. Varied, except for the two crossovers. We have crossovers already? A couple, three. Where's the third one? All right, we'll see. We'll see. Well... Brett, you're up with your number one. All right. Well, no surprises here, guys. I bet. Can we jam on it? (laughs) My number one album of 1995 is The Great Escape by Bowler. Completing their holy trinity of Britpop albums, along with 1993's Modern Life is Rubbish and 1994's Park Life, The Great Escape is the most ambitious, ornate, and grandiose of the three albums. Yes, it's a lazy analogy to say blank is blank Sergeant Pepper, but oh well. In this edition of the Match Game, Charles Nelson Riley says, The Great Escape is Blur Sergeant Pepper. That's the best Charles Nelson Riley you're going to get from me right now. You put the blank in the blankety blank. Or perhaps it's their Village Green Preservation Society because it's the record where all of their kinksy fantasies are played out. Now, note that's kinksy, as in the band The Kinks, not kinky, although maybe it is with opening track stereotype salvo of wife swapping is the future. This is the culmination of Damon Albarn's fascination with everyday English life, mostly focusing on its frustration, alienation, and loneliness, adorned with horns, strings, female backing vocals, and sweeping anthems, all of the hallmarks of the classic British big album. And gosh, I remember the excitement leading up to this album. First of all, there was the release of their first number one UK single, Country House, a month prior to the full length, and the huge hype between whether Country House or Oasis's role with it, which was released on the same day, would win the race to the top spot of the charts. By the way, I love both tracks, but Country House is one of my favorite blurs. I know it's polarizing. There's a lot of people who hate it and find it cloying, but I will challenge anyone to fisticuffs to defend my love for this song and its over-the-top twee Britishness. Fisticuffs, I say. That is, unless, of course, you're bigger or stronger than me, which is just about everybody, in which case I'll give you a stern talking to Then, I remember reading the track-by-track breakdown in one of the British weeklies, either Melody Maker or NME, and its praise for and descriptions of the songs elevated my excitement level about a hundredfold. So, yep, I was right there at Tower Records in La Jolla at midnight when the album went on sale with a meager five or six fellow American Blur fans. The album received widespread praise upon its release. Melody Maker actually gave it 12 out of 10 stars, and Enemy stated that the album, quote, is so rammed 
with tunes, ideas, emotion, humor, tragedy, farce, and edgy beauty that it's utterly beyond contemporary compare. That's pretty high praise. The album hit number one in the UK, spawned four top 10 UK singles, including the minor US hit Charmless Man, and one, for my money, of the grandest ballads ever, The Universal. know that history and critical revisionism has deemed Park Life to be the definitive Blur album and ultimate Britpop statement, but the great escape to me is neck and neck. From the explosive opening guitar and synth riff of Stereotypes and right down to the woozy sadness of the final track, Yuko and Hero, I find it to be perfectly executed even with its flaws. This was the sound of 1995 for me, The Great Escape by Blur. What a great piece. It really was the exclamation point on that Britpop movement. One of them yep. anyway, so definitely. Yep. Great album. Shirley was. You called me Shirley. <laughs> Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Shirley. There's a troll in Central Park. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My number one top five album of 1995 is a one-man project, of course, Dave Grohl's Foo Fighters. Now, he named this project after what U.S. Army Air Force pilots were calling UFOs during World War II to keep his identity hidden because Grohl had a bigger writing role in Nirvana's final In Utero album, so he kept writing after Kurt Cobain's death. Now, the story goes that he made tapes and passed them out to his friends and colleagues just for fun. And those tapes got some label interest, so we formed the band. And I've talked about this before. I was at a club, the same one that Alanis Morissette that I talked about earlier in this episode. It was on Mill Avenue. And no one knew why this band called Foo Fighters bought this Collins. And so I took the van out. I'm parked right there in front of Gibson's. And I'm doing Collins, and this manager comes up and says, hey, you know, this is Dave Grohl's new band. And I took that as wink, wink, nudge, nudge, which I still do. So, of course, I was doing those Collins, and then I announced to the Valley, Dave Grohl's new band, Foo Fighters, playing at Gibson's. Mill Avenue became a madhouse. Eddie Vedder was in attendance that night. This is a call, big me. I'll stick around the big hits off the album. But my number one album from 1995 is the start of Dave Grohl's second induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Foo Fighters' self-titled debut album. My number one album, 1995. I should have seen that one coming. I jotted down as my prediction for you, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, I don't even know if that was from 1995, but that was it. The was first one that it came was something in the Infinite Sadness, like Melancholy, Melancholy, yep. and the that Infinite Sadness, yep. and it came in a box, and they probably made millions off that one because it cost like 40, 50 bucks at the time for all the yep. CDs in that one, and it was great, but it wasn't 
spread great. You know what I mean? I thought, I mean, I played yeah. it and I thought, oh, this is very nice, but it just wasn't, I don't know. Like I liked the earlier stuff better than when we got to that point. That's all. Sure. So it couldn't make my list this week, but Smashing Pumpkins, great band. But I will say I have no doubt what Bueno's number one is. <laughs> yeah, you think? Uh, so <laughs> uh, it. it's called, it's by Trag- Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. Uh, it's the third studio album in this crossover with Uncle Greg. What else can I say about this? I mean, Just a Girl, Charted, Top 100, Don't Speak. I mean, just amazing, amazing top to bottom on this record. I burned the hell out of this record when it came out. I mean, I think I ran this thing probably three days straight, constantly. It was just amazing. I mean, I couldn't get enough of it when it first came out. sold over 20 million copies worldwide sold about 8 million in the United States um, you know it actually entered the billboard at number 175 and then like Uncle Greg said it went to number one uh, spent nine weeks there at number one and it was listed second of the 1997 billboard 200 year end charts behind Spice Girls So, do I have to say any more? But that was my number one for the top five albums from 1995. No doubt, Tragic Kingdom. And of course, this just proves sometimes albums that get released and it's a slow burn. At first, no one notices. Then all of a sudden, it gets, starts getting momentum and then it becomes a freight train like No Doubt, Tragic Kingdom did. Uh, you couldn't escape Tragic Kingdom songs on the radio for a good five, probably even 10 years. You still hear them mm-hmm. all the time yeah. on all these stations. Sunday morning, another great song off that album. All of them oh, are just love great. Love Sunday morning, yeah, yep. yeah, Even Tragic right. Kingdom actually is my favorite off that record. Haven't heard the whole thing though. Are you You're serious? Missing out. You're missing out. You're missing you have out. to remember what headspace I was in in 1995. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The headspace was: I'll give you a blunt object to hit my wife, but if you talk oh. about Blur, we're brawling. And so <laughs> that that was the headspace. So get it, hey man. It's all good. Oh. No. <laughs> No, no judgment here, Brett. All right. Let's run down our top five albums of 1995. Brett, go. My number five is Television Personalities. I was a mod before you was a mod. Number four, Emmy Lou Harris, Wrecking Ball. Number three, Elastica, self-titled. Number two, Pulp, Different Class. And number one, Blur, The Great Escape. And my number five was 311 with their self-titled CD, number four, Goo Goo Dolls, A Boy Named Goo. Number three, Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pool, uh, Pill, I should say. Number two, The Crossover. <laughs> no doubt, Tragic Kingdoms Full Circle. And number one, Foo Fighters and their self-titled album in 1995. And my number five, Squeeze Ridiculous. Number four, Garbage, their first album. Number three, Elastica, Crossover with Uncle Greg. Uh, number two, Kinda. Adamant, Wonderful. What? Did I do something wrong? Well, yeah. it wasn't a co- crossover with Uncle Greg, but... No, I know. It was a crossover with you. I'm sorry. Ah! And my number one, no doubt, Tragic Kingdom. That one was a crossover with Uncle Greg. Yes, yes it was. The other one... A great year for music, and everyone, I really enjoyed all the list. There's not Craziest. one bad pick. But 95, what a great year for a lot of alternative music. I would go to a pool party with any of them. I yep. sure would, too. Especially yep. Gwen. 
and Elastica. I'd like to see them live. I never saw them play at all. Boy, all right, Brett, hit that randomizer. Oh, and away no. we go. The top five songs from Mr. Ed. Did he ever How even have an album? How many songs does Mr. Ed have? He has a top five. Wilbur. There probably is a Mr. Ed album out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, there is. I would guess. There are some weird, weird, oh, back in weird, the day, yeah. wild albums. Yeah. They were recording albums from TV shows that lasted like two seasons back in the day. I saw the Munsters album was oh. just re-released. Oh, that's a cool one. This could be fun. The top five final albums. So in the 03 L era. That. In the 03 L era. So the last album for that artist, as long as it was recorded and released in the 03 L era. All right. So is there anything else you guys need to say? Well, this episode was a real blank in the blank. Blank in the blank. Which means that it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just lost right now in this episode. I mean, it was just too many crossovers. I tried not to have crossovers, but. When there's great music and great minds think alike, all we do is be bueno. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com slash only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening.